Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. So we're into a series, as you can see, about justice. And uh, I introduced it last Sunday by looking at a passage in Genesis chapter 18, verses 19, uh, 18 and 19. And I'm going to read those again this morning. Um, the series flowed out of the series we called One God, One Story, One People, where we talked about the fact that the Bible tells us that you and I, as believers in Jesus, uh, as people of faith, are the offspring of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham, Galatians says. And so, look, considering that to be so, what, what should characterize our lives as children of Abraham? And this verse really opens that up for us. It says, for I have chosen him, that is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In this passage, which we said last week was really effectively a, a divine soliloquy, God talks about the election of Abraham, and he states that the purpose of that election was that Abraham would teach his household and his seed, which, as I said, the New Testament says, is you and I, to walk in the way of the Lord with specific attention to righteousness and justice, in order that the world through us might be blessed. And I spoke of three concepts bound up in this verse, the election, the ethics, and the mission of the people of God. God, God's choosing, God's election of Abraham is not about privileging one race above another. C.S. Lewis says it as well as any when he said, the chosen people are not chosen for their own sakes, but for the sake of the non-chosen. If Israel's mission is to bless the non-chosen, then if that's to happen, special attention must be given to their character, their ethics, the type of people that they must be. Because there can be no effective, no credible biblical mission without biblical ethics. In short, people that are bad news in terms of the way they live their lives cannot with any credibility speak about good news. So God's election of Abraham and his family was and is intended to produce a community committed to the ethical reflection of God's character in the world. And that character in this passage is summed up by these two words, righteousness and justice. And in this message, I want to develop that thought a little with you. The God of the Bible is a God who is righteous and just. And the ethical and moral demands of both Old and New Testament are not simply arbitrary rules that God decided to impose on people to make life as challenging as it could possibly be. They are, in fact, a reflection and an extension of his holy character. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to either study or, or read philosophy. If you have, you may be familiar with what philosophers call the Euthyphro Dilemma. 
Now, the Euthyphro dilemma was named after a character in one of Plato's dialogues, and he raises a very thorny issue which has, over the centuries, been picked up and seized on by antagonists of the Christian faith and used to try and debunk the God of the Bible. And and Euthyphro's dilemma goes like this. In the dialogue, he asks, is something good because God wills it, or does God will something because it's good? Now, if you opt for point A, then you face the problem of this so-called God being completely arbitrary, being capricious. He could have chosen any other thing if he'd liked. He could have just as easily willed that rather than loving people, we should actually hate them, and we would be morally obligated to hate people. This is simply a case of might makes right. God says it, and we have to respond to it. Such a scenario, though, seems absolutely crazy, and it seems wrong, but it is the logical necessity of choosing point A. So, naturally, we are pushed to point B. God wills it because it's good. But if you choose that option, then you've set up a standard of goodness that is independent to and outside of God and to which he is subject. And the problem with that is you no longer have the God of the Bible, who is said to be over all, above all, and the source of all. In this option, there's clearly something above him and to which he is subject. And so we are apparently caught on the horns of a dilemma to which there's no answer. Whichever one we choose, we've debunked the God of the Bible. However, it's a false dilemma. We don't have to choose between A or B since there is a third alternative, C. God wills something because he is good. He's not arbitrary or complete capricious, dreaming up things at will, and neither is he subject to some external standard outside of himself. God's own nature is the standard of goodness. His commands are an expression of his own nature and his character. Moral and ethical obligations are not independent of God. God's character defines what is good. Now, when an atheist tries to put you on the horns of that dilemma by saying something like, well, if God ch- commanded child abuse, would you be obligated to abuse your children? Then, quite frankly, he might as well be asking, if there was a square circle, would the area of the square be one of, would, would the area be, one, be the square of one of the sides? Let me say that again. He might well be asking, if there was a square circle, would its area be the square of one of its sides? That's a stupid question. There's no answer to such a question. There's no need for one, because what it supposes is logically incoherent. The Euthyphro dilemma is what we call a straw man. And a straw man is an argument that is an imaginary argument that doesn't correctly represent the position that it's arguing against. And so people think they've got you caught, but, but it's, it's such a silly dilemma. It's not a dilemma because there's an alternative to it. God wills righteousness and justice because it is a reflection of his very nature. Behind the detailed laws of the Old Testament and the ethical demands of the New Testament stands a fundamental ethical truth concerning the character of God himself. He requires righteousness and justice from those of us who purport to follow him because he is righteous and just. 
Let me read to you a handful of scriptures this morning. Start with Deuteronomy 32.4. Scribe gateness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 111 verse 7. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. Psalm 89.14 and Psalm 97 verse 2 both say righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. In Isaiah 61 verse 8 it says, for I the Lord love justice. And then of course in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 15 verse 3, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you, King of Saints. So God is the ultimate standard of righteousness and justice because they are part of his intrinsic character. And he calls us, you and I, to live out of the character that he has disclosed to us as his chosen and redeemed ones. See, God showed grace to Abraham and his seed by choosing them from among the nations. Much later in the story of the Bible, he hears their cries as they are ill-treated and oppressed in Egypt, and he comes to rescue them from that slavery. Things are put right, which is the idea behind justice. Things are put right through that act of redemption, and they are released from their bondage. They make their way out to Mount Sinai, where he officially constitutes them as his people, and he gives to them what we call the law. Now, the law is given to this people in a context of an already established relationship, one established by grace. The law was never given to Israel as a means of achieving salvation, as you sometimes hear. To pit the law against grace is to miss the truth that God is giving Israel the law as a gracious act to a people who are already his. He's not saying to them, you keep the law and you can be my people and I'll give you salvation. He has already redeemed, restored, chosen them, shown them grace, and then he gives them the law. In giving them this law, God was not laying down requirements that they would need to adhere to if they wanted to be his people. They were already his people. Instead, God begins with who they are as his chosen rescued people and then teaches them how to live in the light of that new identity. The law is about guidance in responding to salvation already worked for them by grace. It was given to enable them to live in the way of righteousness and justice and be a community that would be a blessing to others. So they are called to live in and out of their relationship with God and reflect Him. Having experienced righteousness and justice, they are now called to be righteous and to do justice. In effect, what God is saying to this group of people is, I want you to live out of what you have personally experienced. You are to be like the God who has acted on your behalf and to whom you now belong. When God gave to Israel the Ten Commandments, they weren't arbitrary demands on an unsuspecting people. 
They were given in order to preserve the rights and the freedoms that they had gained by redemption. They had experienced these things in their deliverance from Egypt. And these commands would have deeply resonated with the experience that they had just been through. These commands, as I say, aren't just dumped on them and they're going, what, what, Where, what do you want us to do what? They are saying, oh, that so deeply resonates with what we have just experienced. It's about living out of the experience of God's grace. L- let, me, let me illustrate for you by going through the Ten Commandments. In releasing Israel from Egyptian bondage, God gave them the right and the freedom to worship him. You remember that the Egyptians had prevented that possibility. Now they have it, and therefore, God says, the first commandment is about doing that exact thing and doing it exclusively. No other gods. By his mighty act of grace, issuing in redemption, God showed himself to be a living, incomparable God. Therefore, he says to them, to create and worship a lifeless image would be an insult. So the second commandment is no graven images. The exodus involved a powerful demonstration of the meaning of his powerful name. Therefore, they must not use that name foolishly or selfishly. That's the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. God had freed them from the forced labor of Egypt, enabling them to work as free men. Therefore, they must preserve this right in the celebration of a weekly Sabbath for all. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. God had freed them from the violence of Pharaoh's uh, attempt to destroy their families. Therefore, they should protect the family as regards parental authority. That's the fifth commandment, to honor your parents and to maintain its sexual integrity. That's the second, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. God freed them from the infanticide and murder of Egypt. Therefore, respect life, don't kill. That's the sixth commandment. By God's grace, they are going to possess a land of their own. Therefore, don't steal or covet. That has to do with the eighth and tenth commandment. And they had experienced God's justice. Therefore, don't betray others by perverting justice. That's the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness. Can you see that all of these commandments were something they experienced in their deliverance from Egypt and there was a therefore attached to it. In the light of that, live this way. They weren't just unsuspecting arbitrarily chosen rules. They are an expression of the character of God that these people have experienced. And effectively God is saying, as my people live out of what you have experienced. In the law, God regularly asks Israel to remember that they were once slaves and that God had rescued them and he calls them to love other people in the light of that remembrance. That's why in Deuteronomy, for example, he says, love strangers because you were once strangers. God's rescue of his people from oppression and slavery was meant to shape the very core of their identity and practice as they now move into their own land. It's the same, same for you and me. Forgiven, we become forgivers. We are justified to be just. We are to be holy 
because we've experienced the holiness of God. We could just as easily say, God is righteous and just, therefore, you be righteous and just. Live out of the grace that you have been shown and you have experienced. Let me, let me take one little nuance of this justice of God, this righteousness of God, and, and follow it through on a bit of a trail and see how what we've experienced in God is supposed to be something that others experienced in and through us. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17, it tells us that God is not partial and he cannot be bribed. He shows equity to all. And since, that true, since that's true, he then says, you are to be a reflection of that in your community. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, he says, you appoint judges and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. That's, by the way, the exact same two words used in Genesis chapter 18, righteousness and justice. Um, don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality. Don't accept bribes. God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't accept brides to pervert justice. Don't you do it either. Justice and only justice, he says, shall you follow. Why? Because that's what you experienced in God. That was your experience of his dealings with you. You now reflect that in all of your dealings to others. That thought is carried over into the New Testament where Paul says in Timothy, do nothing from partiality. I want to read to you from the book of James. Now, in many respects, James's epistle is about how to live a lifestyle of justice, compassion, and integrity. And in chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 9, it reads like this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, as, I, as, you, as we've read that together, you, you might be perhaps thinking, well, it's kind of a long reading, Don. Why didn't you start where it, where it talked about the partiality? Why did you have to read that part about the mirror? It really doesn't have anything to do with your partiality point. But actually, it's vital to the whole passage and perhaps even vital to the whole book. That passage talks about a man who looks in the mirror and then fails to act on the revelation that it affords him. 
if you and I were to look in the mirror and to see that we are totally disheveled, surely you'd go and do something about it. You would comb your hair, you'd wash your face, you'd brush your teeth or whatever. The revelation, the revelation of the mirror is actually meant to determine how you act. You, you act out of what you see and experience in that mirror. And James says, to fail to act out of the revelation that the mirror affords you is the height of foolishness. James points out that the mirror is the royal law of liberty. It's, it's, our, it's the revelation of the scriptures. And, and I have to confess that as I've read that scripture over the years, more often than not, I have read it in a negative sense. I, I, it goes kind of like, I look in the mirror and I see my sin and my failure, and I need to go away and get that mess cleaned up through repentance and cleansing. But actually, that passage doesn't make any comment on whether the person looking in the mirror is in a sad or glad condition. It actually just says to look into the mirror and not act on the revelation that you see is pointless and foolish. Now, as you look in the mirror of God's word, what, what is it that we see? Yes, at times it can speak to us in terms of our failure. It might say to us, you need cleansing. But just as often, and perhaps more often, there are things like, you are a new creation. You have been redeemed. You have been justified. You are being sanctified. You are greatly loved. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are recipients of great grace. James then says, when we see that and we don't act out of that revelation and out of the resources of God's grace made available to us, then we have seriously missed the point. James and the rest of the New Testament don't simply say, hey, try harder, keep the rules, use some willpower. What he says, consistent with what I've been talking about, is act out of the grace that you've been shown and that has been made available to you. You have tasted God's righteousness and justice, and he's put his seed in you. You have his DNA, as it were. Live out of that, empowered by the grace that he's given you. A changed lifestyle flows out of a radical transformation in your self-understanding on the basis of what he's done for you. The power comes out of knowing who's, who God's made you to be and out of the resources of God's grace that he's given you because you belong to him. And James starts to unpack this. And he shows us what a socially ethical life will look like in chapter 2, and then what a personally ethical look, life would look like in chapters 3 through 5. In chapter 2 that we just read, he develops this idea of God being impartial and how our experience of his equitable dealing with us should make us deal equitably with everybody that we come in contact with. Don't be impartial. Romans 2.11 says, there is no favoritism with God. James picks that up and then says, my brothers, stop showing favoritism. Since God doesn't do that and we are to ethically reflect his character, don't you do that. Actually, the word favoritism there is in the plural. He says, my brothers, stop showing favoritisms. James, in this passage, highlights one form of that favoritism, rich over poor. 
Perhaps he could have just as easily used other forms of bias and partiality. Maybe he should have said, you do not prefer one race over another. Or he might have said, you do not prefer one gender over another. Perhaps he would say, listen, don't show partiality toward the hip, the beautiful, and the cool over the rest of us nerds. You're saying, speak for yourself. (laughs) I am. Chapter 2, verse 1 of James literally reads, not with partiality of any sorts must you hold the faith of Jesus Christ, who is the glory. It's kind of an interesting phrase, and you think, why would you say that about Jesus, who is the glory? I mean, he could have just as easily said, Christ the gracious one, or Christ the wonderful one, or Christ the beautiful one. Why would James say, don't hold partiality or favoritisms because of Jesus Christ the glory? Well, James is a devout Jew, very very acquainted with the Hebrew concept of glory. In the Hebrew, the word glory means substance. It means weight. It means something has, in our culture, we would say mana. And James is saying, how could you possibly be swayed and impressed by the so-called substance of a rich man? You've encountered ultimate worth and the weight of God's son, Jesus. There is no reason to be so impressed by the infinitely inferior weight of a worldly person so as to be bullied in betraying your father's character by being partial toward him. Jesus was the express image of God in human flesh, full of grace and glory. He was truly the most weighty personality of all history. And, and yet, we know the story. He became poor for you and I. I suspect that if you and I had met the earthly Jesus, there would have been no outward indication of his worth or weight. If you, like Samuel initially with Jesse's family, had judged entirely on outward appearances, perhaps you may well have turned away from him. James is saying, don't make that mistake. Don't judge and show partiality based on outward appearances. Treat all people equitably. You know what? You simply do not know with whom you are dealing. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. In the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Natures, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom, with whom we joke, with whom we, sorry, whom we joke with, work with, marry, 
snub and exploit. Don't treat people with partiality. Don't show favoritisms of any kind because that is not what God our Father does. And he says, you have experienced my justice. I call you to be a community that now reflects that. And so you don't show partiality. You, you don't snub people, exploit people because A, you don't know who that you're dealing with. They are not a mere mortal, a poor person, a black person. Uh, you fill in the gap. C.S. Lewis is saying, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. Every single person you meet is made in the image of God. And that image may be distorted, it may be, uh, it, it may be marred significantly, but I tell you, by virtue of that image, they deserve to be treated with dignity. And that's our calling. In the midst of a world of injustice where all kinds of favoritisms and partialities exist, we are a people who reflect his righteousness and justice. And we stand against that and we say, no, that's not right. I guess the underlying passage probably that, goes, that will go from the start of the series right to the end is a passage that's one of my favorite scriptures, has been right since I got saved. And it's from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, and it says, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's our call. As the seed of Abraham, we are to walk in the way of the Lord, which looks particularly like righteousness and justice. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.